Amen. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. That's the whole chapter. Last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at three responses to Jesus. We saw the indifference of the religious leaders. We saw the hostility of Herod. You remember he um, was threatened by a new king coming to rule and reign. And then we saw the worship of the wise men. This time we see preparation being made so people can receive Jesus. An interesting guy named John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance. That's what's in this message here. He comes, his mission is to prepare the hearts of the people so that they might receive Jesus Christ. And so, kind of an interesting guy. I mean, uh, you know, if you've read about John the Baptist before, you might wonder about him. You might think he's kind of an odd character. Uh, And, you know, he he was. And uh, so we'll get to know him a little bit today. The message is, you know, essentially divided into two parts. You could make this chapter into two parts. John prepares the way for Jesus. John baptizes Jesus. Um, That's the overall picture of this chapter. So that's where we're going. I think this is a really important message because... Oftentimes, we misunderstand repentance. Um, If you were to ask, you know, 100 Christians, what does repentance mean? I bet you'd get a few different answers, you know, which um, is unfortunate because there is an answer. There is one answer to what repentance means. Um, It's just like if you ask people what two plus two is, there's only one answer to that. Um, It is an important subject because Jesus, the first word out of his mouth when he shared the gospel, the good news, was repent and be baptized. Repent and trust in God. Repent, you know, it was always repent. Now, if, if you notice Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, you remember that, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon everybody to speak with tongues, and then Peter preached his first message. And the first word, you know, the the gist of that message, the application was they needed to repent. Remember, they said, well, what do we do? He says, you killed the Messiah. He said, well, what do we do now? And he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul preached the gospel. He told people to repent. Um, It's all through the Bible, this word repent. It's um, accurate to say that it is an essential element of salvation and receiving the gospel, And that's why it's so important to understand what this word means. And I think we're going to get a clear understanding of what it does mean by looking at John the Baptist's ministry here today. Let's just pick it up here in verse 1, where Matthew tells us, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, back in chapter 2, we left off with Jesus as a youth. Here we skip ahead about 30 years, passing over all the events of Jesus' young life. Now he's a grown adult. And this is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. From this point on, there's about three years until Jesus goes to the cross. Okay, so just so your mind understands the chronology of the Gospel of Matthew. Here you are in chapter 3, and now from chapter 3 on, it's only about a three-year period, right? Now, where it says, in those days, John the Baptist. Now, Matthew introduces us here to one of the strangest, most interesting men in the New Testament. 
Luke tells us a little bit about his origins. He was born to a man named Zacharias, a woman named Elizabeth, miraculously, if you'll remember. Um, they were past the age of bearing children. An angelic visit announced that this was going to happen to Zacharias. The angel Gabriel uh, told him this. This is written in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 17. This is what the angel told Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. He said, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, John's birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's his mission. He will also go before him, capital H, Jesus, he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what Gabriel the angel, uh, angel spoke to Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad. What a thing for an angel to tell you about your kid. You know, can you imagine Zacharias after that? He's driving the SUV, him and Elizabeth, and they've got the sticker on the back window that says, my kid's in all state, or no, it says my kid will do, you know, it's Luke chapter one, you know, the whole thing. Uh, he also goes on to say this. This is Zacharias' prophecy over his son now, right? Listen to this, Luke chapter one, verse 76 through 80. And you, child, talking to his son, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a prophecy to say over your son, right? You know, he, this, is, this is not your average guy, right? This dad was pleased with his son. By the way, just a side note, good thing we all don't have to be John the Baptist to have a father that's pleased with us, right? You know, uh, But this is what he said about his son there. And then verse 80 says, So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, when John the Baptist was born, his parents were past the age of uh, childbearing, so it's likely that they died like right away while he was a kid, right? So this guy grew up in the wilderness, um, kind of on his own, you know, from the sounds of things. And so, interesting character. What did he do? Back to Matthew, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist was a preacher. He didn't have an auditorium, he didn't have comfy chairs, he didn't have a microphone or air conditioning. He was preaching in the rugged Judean wilderness. And let me show you a map here, uh, so you can kind of get an idea of where he was at. Right here, where this arrow is, this is about where John the Baptist was uh, preaching. The Sea of Galilee, this is where most of the Gospel of Matthew takes place up here. And then this is the Dead Sea, right? And so you see right here, this is the Jordan River running into here. And this is the, you know, Judea. This is the Judean wilderness. And so John the Baptist was right about right here baptizing people. This is where his ministry took place. Now, this is rugged wilderness out there. But I don't want you to think it's like desert. It's um, green and, you know, and different things. But it's arid and it's... Um, you know, it was still inhabited. There were desert dwellers, but it was rugged. I mean, you had to be like, a, like an outdoorsman sort of guy, you know, to, to be able to live out there. A lot of time to think, you know, and hear from the Lord and a lot of, 
uh, peace and you know, so on. So that's about where he's at. I just wanted you to see uh, you know, for yourself where, where this is. What was he doing, uh, his message? Look at verse 2. He was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John called people to repentance. That was his message. Now, his message was confrontational. It was black and white. It was, he presented people with a black and white choice. He said, essentially, you're not right. You need to get right. You know, that was, that's what repent means. It means to churn. Remember in the prophecies uh, in Luke, he was to churn the hearts of his people, the disobedient to their Lord. And so John came with this message and he was saying, repent. And he was saying it out in the rugged wilderness. He didn't have the church auditorium. He didn't have a microphone. He didn't have the worship team. Um, and he was just out there going at it. This is an interesting guy. Now, let me give you a definition of repentance. That's on the next slide here. I put it on the slide so we can think about it. And really, this is what it means is, is a U-turn or a 180, uh, you know, for you skateboarders. I used to be a skateboarder when I was a, when I was a kid, and I would go out and I would try to ride my skateboard, and I'd try to do a 180, you know, uh, 180 degrees. You turn around and go back, you know, the way that you were coming before. And that's what that picture there represents, a 180. So repent, the Greek word is uh, right here, it's metanoeo. It's not important how to pronounce it for you probably, but it's a compound word. Uh, it means it's made, up, you know, it's made up of a couple different words here. The first one, meta, which means a change of place or condition, plus noeo, to exercise the mind to think or comprehend. So you put those two together and uh, it's to change the way you think or comprehend something. That's what the word repentance means. To change the way you think or comprehend something. Theologically speaking, it involves a true change of heart toward God. Now, feelings likely accompany it, but the word itself just means to change the mind. That's what it means. A lot of people confuse that. They think that it's a feelings word. They say, you know, they think of this word repent and everybody's like shameful down like this. And, oh, I'm repenting. I'm, oh, I'm so sad. You see how sad I am. Well, the feelings come along with it. You know, I hate sinning. I can't stand it. And so I have a feeling about it, right? But really the word just means a change of mind. Um, and that's its root definition. Is repentance a work? That's a question that comes up a lot of times. You'll hear this theological debate. I thought that the gospel was, uh, I'm saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. But you're telling me I need to repent in order to be saved, is repentance a work? Has anybody ever heard that before or thought this before? Well, it's out there. This debate is out there um, within the, you know, you particularly find it Calvinists, you know, pick up this one and, uh, you know. Let me give you an illustration. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. One is maybe stupid, and then the other one is maybe a little better. I don't know. Um, but the stupid one, I decided whether I should even do it or not. But then I was like, well, what if that's the Lord? You know, I don't know. I don't want to take it out. Here it goes. Um, in the context of salvation, how am I saved? You know, well, I need to repent to be saved. Is repentance a work or, or what is the deal? So I was looking at my dog the other day, and he got this Christmas present where he, it's this log. I might have told you about it. And it has all these squirrels inside of it, like six of them. And my niece keeps track of all six of them when she's at our house, by the way. She'll be like, I only see five, Adam. You know, and, uh, but so the dog keeps track of them as well. And he's walking around and he's got two of them in his mouth. And I get a kick out of him because he's trying to pick up another one, <laughs> right? 
And I keep thinking to him, I'm like, you know, you can't pick up the one unless you drop the other one, right? Now, this is sort of an illustration of repentance in the context of salvation. I can't pick up Jesus unless I drop what else I'm holding, right? So repentance, is it a work? No, no, it's part of picking up Jesus. In order for my dog to pick up something else, he has to drop what's in his mouth, right? Here's another illustration. That was the dumb one, by the way. So you have this other one to look forward to. It's maybe a little better. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. Oh, uh, boy. It's like, you know, here we go. Okay. So illustration two. Perhaps another one that'll be better. Imagine, this is very simple. Imagine a man's just walking, and then he just turns around and goes the other way. That's repentance. It's just I'm walking one direction, and I turn away from that direction, and I go this direction, you know? Um, if I was in Clear Lake right now, and you told me I needed to come to Mason City, you could sufficiently say to me, come to Mason City, and I would understand that I have to leave Clear Lake, right? That's repentance. I have to leave Clear Lake to come to Mason City. I have to repent of, I have to leave all my ideas about Christ that are not godly, that are not true. I have to leave all those behind in order to embrace the true ideas about Christ, you know? That's what repentance is. So John is calling people. He's saying you need to drop whatever attitudes you have towards God, whatever understanding you have towards it, because it's not correct, and you need to pick up the true understanding uh, of what God, uh, of who he is, and, you know, what he expects and all that. So that's what it means to repent. Now look at the motivation he gives there. He says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The term kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the term kingdom of God in other gospels. Um, there's no difference between them. The reason Matthew uses kingdom of heaven is likely because the Jews, he's writing to a Jewish, Jewish audience primarily, Jews wouldn't even use the word God. Uh, in fact, today, if you're reading you know, a Jewish website or anything, you'll see G-D, you won't see G-O-D. They were very serious about not pronouncing, the, not even saying God. So most likely Matthew's writing kingdom of heaven. The way that he uses the term, it's just the same as any gospel writer uses for kingdom of God. That's the reason he gives for repentance. He says, you know, you need to turn from this life that you're living and you need to turn to a different sort of life. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is right here. He says it's at hand. How close is that hand? It's right here, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think maybe I'll give you a little backstory about what Jews were doing at this time. By and large, national, you know, you can make a, and there were, of course, some that were, you know, exceptions to this rule. But by and large, the Jews were in a backslidden state. They were God's chosen people. They had the law. Uh, they had the Torah. But they weren't living like that. They were worldly. They, uh, especially by this time, because the Hellenization, you know, of this world at this time, the Greek influence of Alexander the Great, the Jews had become incredibly worldly, doing things like the pagans around them. And so by the time John says repent, he's saying, you know, you've got to come out of this worldliness, living like you don't know God, and you have to come back into this position that you were of being obedient to God. And so he says you need to do that because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's a two-part answer. The kingdom of heaven is a two-part answer. Uh, what is it? There's two elements to it. There's the not yet and the already. Has anybody ever heard that theological term, the already, the not yet, the going to be and the now is? You know, here we are in the already, but there's a not yet that hasn't taken place. Now, what that means is the already 
the already is very easy to define. The kingdom is wherever the king is ruling. Okay? This, in a sense, is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the king of heaven rules our hearts, right? So we're worshiping the king. We're subject to the king. The kingdom of heaven is among you, as Jesus says. And that's what he means. Wherever the king is, wherever the king's enthroned properly, that's the kingdom. That's the already aspect of the kingdom of heaven. There's a not yet aspect of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible talks clearly about how Jesus um, will come and set up a literal millennial kingdom for a thousand-year reign. Um, uh, you know, it talks about that in the book of Revelation um, and other places in the Bible. So that's the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. I'm ruled by the king now. You are. So there's that already aspect. And then there's the, the when we pray, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven, one day that will be literally fulfilled according to our you know, interpretation of eschatology where um, you know, we uh, see that that's a literal millennial reign that Christ is going to bring. Okay? Now, so when John is saying repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's talking about that already aspect. He's saying you need to get right with the Lord because God's still on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And then even though you're in a backslidden state, you know, God's still ruling and reigning, so you need to turn and get right with him. And that was his message. I don't think he was probably saying it with a nice tone like I am, you know. Sometimes they tell you in pastor training, they say that, you know, you want to try to emulate the, the you know, the feeling of the passage, you know. I'm not going to try to do that because I think it'd be scary. I think John's out there going, repent and turn from the, the kingdom of heaven. Is that? I don't know why I would think he would have that accent. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you've seen the pictures of him. He's all grizzly and, you know, he's got a stick. And... Verses three through four, who he was. So you see that, you see that's what he's doing. He's calling them to repent to the rule of God internally in their hearts. They're to say, I give up rule of my life and I'm, I'm going to be ruled by God. Again, I'm going to come out of that state. Now who he was, verses three through four. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Hmm. We're going to have snacks after church today. And guess what I brought? No, I didn't bring locusts. <laughs> yeah, locusts. No, locusts, man. Locusts and wild honey. This is interesting, you know, that these details here, um, they're not just random. Uh, the outfit that he's wearing, it's actually... Uh, this takes your mind back to Second Kings, which is a description of Elijah. Um, interesting that Matthew connects that. And his diet, you know, that was, you know, kosher diet. You read in Leviticus the, you know, the diet that the Jews could eat. Locusts were part of that. You could eat those. And so locusts and wild honey. Probably a pretty healthy dude. I guess that's a good source of protein. Um, you know, I don't know. Anybody had locusts? No. Oh, good. Yuck. <laughs> this verse in Isaiah, 
that Matthew quotes, he, he says, he says I'm going I'm to liken John the Baptist to this prophecy from Isaiah. Now, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. This quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Matthew's connecting John with the forerunner that would prepare the way for the Lord. Let me read the verse from Isaiah. Uh, the verse is, it says this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain, hill, and hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, in Isaiah, what's happening is Isaiah is talking about what's called a forerunner. Now, what would happen when a king was going to travel forerunners would go out to the different villages and towns and they would announce, hey, the king is coming. Now, people would clean up the town. They would straighten everything up. Uh, and also what would happen is they would go and they would make roads going into these villages so the king could travel on them. In fact, that's how the roads were a lot of times created is if a king was going to go on a, you know, whatever sort of campaign or whatever, he's going to go through these different villages. They'd go and they'd flatten uh, areas and make a nice path for, for the king to travel on, right? So, Matthew is doing a word picture here. The word picture is this. As the forerunner would go out and blaze through the, you know, the rugged terrain and cut through the mountains and everything to make a nice road for the king to ride in on, John the Baptist will go blaze through the terrain of the sinful human heart to make a path for King Jesus to ride into. You see the connection there? John's calling people to repentance because an unrepentant heart is the equivalent of a wilderness, right? We need to have a path made for us to receive Jesus Christ. And that's what the message of repentance is. And that's the way salvation works in general. Like, you think about this. If you're saved here today, at some point in your life, you were convicted of your sin, Right? you started to realize, wow, no matter how good I try to be, I can't be good enough and I'm not perfect and, and uh, who will save me from this you know, uh, condition that I'm in? And you recognize that something happened. The Bible tells us that that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon you and said, hey, he came next to you and he started saying, you're not perfect. You need Jesus. Jesus is perfect. And that's, that's what happened to every one of us at some point or another, however it happened, right? And it's interesting that John's like the literal picture of this. He comes first and prepares the way of the Lord. He clears through the wilderness of the sinful human heart by calling us to repentance. So there's a straight path then for the king to ride in, right? Because the king doesn't come in unless there's the, the, the clear path, right? Unless the, the spirit has convicted us of our sin and our need for a savior, he doesn't come in, right? And that was John's message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Now, here's something really interesting. I don't know if you're thinking through this as early and everything I know uh, for some of us. But in Isaiah, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord, the word Lord there is Yahweh, right? Now, Matthew's saying that John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord, who is Jesus. So two, you put two and two together. What is Matthew calling Jesus? Right. He's connecting the two, you see? The subtle details of the Bible. The Bible, you know, people, skeptics of the Bible say, especially Muslims will say, Jesus never claimed to be God anywhere in the Bible. It's all through the Bible. In little details like this, and this, is, this one's obscure. There's way more clear places than this. But this is, you know, you don't catch this unless you're paying attention and thinking, 
know, loving the Lord your God with your mind, right? <clears throat> what impact did John's ministry have, verses 5 through 6? Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region of the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. I'll show you on the map. Uh, there's another, yeah, see, he's, this guy's on it back there. Look at this area. That whole area of people got up, no car, no coffee. Maybe they had coffee, I don't know. No auditorium, no children's ministry. I, I mean, you know, no bells and whistles, you know, none of that. And they went out to the rugged wilderness to repent of their sin. This is amazing. This is a work of the Lord. <laughs> These people were aware of their sinfulness and their need for the Savior, and they were taking action to do something about it. They were baptized in the Jordan River. Now, this is incredibly significant that these Jews were submitting to John's baptism. I'll tell you why. This is right in this river here. They were all coming out. John's dunking them. They were baptized in the Jordan. How baptism, that word in Greek there, means fully submerged or overwhelmed them. Uh, they didn't sprinkle them. Uh, John the Baptist dunked them, right? Uh, the sprinkling came about when church started baptizing babies. Um, John was dunking them. Uh, full submersion. Now, the Jewish community at this time already had a form of baptism that was similar, but not the same as what John was doing. One way that baptism was used by the Jews uh, was in the proselyte baptism. In other words, if you were a Gentile that wanted to become a Jew. By the way, the word Gentile just means everybody that's not a Jew. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism, they would baptize you. Now, Jews at this time, and there again were exceptions to the rule, hated Gentiles. They believed that God created Gentiles as like kindling for hell. Seriously. Um, some of the prayers of the rabbis were like, Lord, I thank you today that you haven't made me a woman, you haven't made me a Gentile, and all this stuff. I mean, not cool, like where a lot of these people's heart were at. They hated the Gentiles, and you can see it all through the scriptures. So for a whole bunch of Jews, that whole area, to go out and to submit to a baptism that is typically used when Gentiles want to convert to Judaism? Well, in effect, they're saying, you know what, we're just as far from God as any of these Gentiles are. So this is huge. It's hugely, you know, important and significant that they were submitting to this baptism because they were saying, you know, even though that we're God's chosen people, we're convicted. We realize as God's people that we've drifted so far from what God wants us to be doing that we need to go repent, Right? Sometimes that keeps people from repentance, doesn't it? Thinking that, well, I'm God's chosen people, you know. doesn't matter. I don't need to repent. I, I'm right with the Lord, you know. And they don't examine themselves. They don't, the Spirit convicts them of areas in their life where they need to be changing, where they need to be growing, things they need to be leaving behind, new choices they need to be making. And they ignore the voice of the Spirit and they just say, you know what, I'm God's chosen people. I grew up in church, you know what I mean? I, I went to Awana as I was baptized, you know, as a kid. I, it doesn't apply to me. And they miss the voice of the Spirit. They miss the message of John the Baptist. They miss the message of the Holy Spirit saying, come and turn. Turn from your, from your ways that don't please the Lord. And they miss that. 
And so it's significant that these people, God's people, that had, you know, the potential of just resting on their laurels, right? They had the potential of doing that, but they, were, they responded to the conviction of the Spirit to come and repent of their sin. Christian baptism is like John's baptism in a sense um, because it involves repentance. But Christian baptism is more um, than what John was doing because in Christian baptism, when you go under the water, you're associating with Christ in his death. And when you come out of the water, you're associating a new life filled with the Spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me when you come up out of the water. So when you get baptized as a Christian, um, what should be going on in your heart is saying, I trust Jesus Christ, I'm done with my old life, and I'm coming up to new life, and he's the Lord of my life now. And I, I'm identifying in his death, my old nature is dead, nailed to the cross, and I'm coming up a new being. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, past tense. You don't re-crucify yourself uh, as a Christian. You have been crucified with Christ, and you come up out of the water, and you're new in life. And so John's baptism is a little different. And notice the last detail in that little section there. It says that they were confessing their sins. Now, if there wasn't a heart that was confessing sins, all John was doing was giving them a bath, right? Because you can get baptized until you're, you know, pruned up and waterlogged. And it means nothing if there's no confession of sin, right? I can't tell you how many parents I've had ask me if I would baptize their kids. And I'm like, does your kid know what they're doing? And they're like, my kid doesn't know what they're doing. So why would I baptize them then? Because it doesn't, I mean, the whole thing is a picture of me saying I'm repentant of my sin. I'm confessing my sin and my intention to follow Christ with my whole life. All the baptism in the world doesn't mean anything unless there's a confession of sin. The significance, the spiritual significance of this, the condition of the hearts brought about the confession of the lips. Now, if you think about it, this is true revival. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings where people are praying for revival. This is always the key to revival. I've studied a few revivals, Welsh revival, these different, some of the more well-known ones. And one thing that was in common with the ones that I've studied um, is that there was a sense of a brokenness, a realness of my sin and my need to get right with the Savior. And that would spread uh, through whole villages, you know, through whole cities, through whole towns. Uh, and, and people would say, I'm broken before the Lord. I've drifted so far from what Jesus wants me to be doing. And they would come and they would repent before him and they would lay down and say, God, I'm, I need to be restored. Revive me. And you know what? You know how a revival happens? When individuals start coming to the Lord and saying, I need to be revived. Because enough individuals do that. And then, and then it's a revival, Right? I mean, revival starts with the Holy Spirit, but, but get this. The Holy Spirit is speaking today, and he's telling you exactly what needs to go in your life. He definitely is. Definitely. God, God is definitely telling you right now, he's giving you the key to revival. Right now. If you listen to it, right? If you have the ears to hear what God is saying, he's giving you the keys to revival. Personal revival. Revival in your family, revival in your parenting, revival in your relationships, revival at work. He's giving you the key right now, if you'll listen. These people listened. And they came out to John and they said, baptize me. I got to be made afresh. I got to turn from that sin. I need to turn back to the Lord. And they responded to that call. People want to see revival today. It starts with me going to God and saying, you know, Lord, even if I'm, uh, even if it hurts, Lord, I need to just show me. I need to, just, like the psalmist says, right? 
Search me and try me, Lord, and know if there's anything wicked in me. If there's anything that grieves you, God, would you show it to me? I want to challenge you today. Do you speak to the Lord like that? Do you, do you come to him like that? Is that how your prayer is? Is, is your prayer like that? God, have, have your way. Have free reign in my life. I'm willing, Lord, for you to show me the things that grieve you. Maybe it's the way I talk to people. Maybe it's the way I don't talk to people. Maybe it's how I treat my parents. Maybe it's how I treat my sisters and brothers. How I do at school. You know, whatever. The Spirit knows exactly what needs to go for revival to happen. Well, you welcome that. Now, verses 7 through 12, we're going to see how John deals with the religious rulers. The religious rulers uh, come out to be baptized by John, and um, look how he deals with them. Verse 7. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> That's not how you, I mean, boy, where was this greeter on that one? You know what I mean? John, you need to do greeter training with people so when the religious establishment comes to your baptism, that, you know, somebody needs to put a filter on this guy, right? But he calls it exactly what it is. He says, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Right? Therefore, he says, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And I want you to hold on to that verse because we're going to look at that. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not uh, worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." So the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's, under, it's, it's important that you have a little bit of an understanding of them when you're reading the Gospels because they pop up all over the place. Has anybody seen these words before? Yeah. Um, kind of have an idea of who they are. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious rulers. They were like the Jewish religious authorities. They were like the top of the denomination, if you will, just for, uh, you know, an understanding. Now, the Pharisees, their name means the separated ones. They were a group that um, believed that the way that you were saved was by meticulously keeping all the laws in the Old Testament. You had to keep the laws, and if you did, God was happy with you, and if he didn't, God would burn you. And uh, of course, then they became hypocritical because, you know, who's ever tried to keep all the Ten Commandments even for like 10 minutes, right? <laughs> so you can't really do it unless, unless you start interpreting it in a way where uh, is skewed, right? Which they did. But they were legalists. They were separatists. They were holier than thou, if you will. And they judged everybody on what they were doing. And they were hypocritical on top of it. Now, the Sadducees, they were comparable to like the liberal theologians of today. They look religious on the outside. They have the outfit. But yet their interpretation of scripture pushes out anything to do with angels, supernatural, um, resurrection, anything like that. 
they were heavily involved in politics. They were the keepers of the temple in Jerusalem. You remember when Jesus goes in and cleans the temple out and he says, you made uh, my father's house a den of thieves. Well, that's what the Sadducees did to the temple because they turned it into a marketplace, right? So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they pop up all over in the Gospels and now you have a little background on them there. They show up to John's baptism. So here comes the head of the denomination out to this new upstart ministry in the Jordan River Valley. And John says, you brood of vipers. Now, how many pastors today would go up to him and be like, hey guys, glad to see the head of the denominations here. Maybe, you know, come sit in the front. Oh, you know, (laughs) not John. He calls it like he sees it. He calls him a brood of vipers. Now that term uh, back then, people thought that uh, vipers were the way that they were born was they hatched in their mother's stomach and they ate their way out. Yeah, brood of vipers. So essentially he's calling them parent killers, you know, which is like the worst offense, right? It's a terrible thing to say about them. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Well, that tells you more about John the Baptist's message. He was saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because there's wrath to come. Uh, There's a wrath that God is going to bring upon this world, um, according to the Bible, that needs to be escaped. Like you're not going to endure it, you need to escape it. And you can freely escape it through faith in Christ. Um, And that's what John was telling him. Who who warned you to flee the wrath to come? These religious leaders were into the show of religion, the outward display. Now, by coming to John's baptism, they were likely coming there just because that's where the people were and they're the religious people. And so they're likely coming just to have another show of things. But John sees right through that religious facade. And he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. What John is telling them there is that they should live lives that actually reflect repentance. You know, you can come to the baptism, you can come to the church service, but if your life doesn't reflect this turning from sin and turning to God that you say that you've done, that's a problem. And that's what he's telling them there. He's saying, you brood of vipers, go live a life that actually reflects what you say you're about. And he sent them away like that. Now, that's a difficult message, but it's much needed for the church today. All the religious display, all the coming to church, all that stuff doesn't mean anything if your heart's not in the right place with it. It just doesn't mean anything. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So at this time, the Jews believed that just because they were in Abraham's lineage. Actually, what they used to teach was Abraham stands at the gate of hell. And if you were going to die, you know, Abraham uh, will keep you from being able to go to hell because you're part of the family. You're, you're born into it, all right? And so you're good. You don't need to repent. You don't need any of this repentance stuff. And that's why John tells him, he says, don't think to say to yourselves that you're sons of Abraham. Um, God can just raise up sons of Abraham from this rock here. And he says in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He's referring to Jesus there. About the sandals, rabbis in this day uh, had disciples follow them around like Jesus did. But as a rabbi, what you could not do, you could have your you know, disciples do all kinds of stuff for you. you know, you're the master and you're teaching them, but you could not have them untie or carry your sandals because that was too low. So John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that in comparison to Jesus. He has a humble heart towards the Lord. 
right? Look what he says about him. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the fire here in the context is not talking about like, I've seen some videos on TV where guys are like running around doing cartwheels down the middle aisle of the church and they're going, I got the fire, I got the fire. You know, It's not that kind of fire that he's talking about. Look at the context here. The very next verse tells you what he's talking about. He says his winnowing fan is in his hand and he'll thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. Uh, and he goes on and he's, what he's talking about is judgment, right? Jesus will come and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit He'll pour his Holy Spirit out upon his people, and he'll also bring the fires of judgment, right? Now, that fire of judgment that the Holy Spirit brings purifies the righteous, and it burns up those that reject Christ. And that's what John's getting at. Let me show you a picture of a winnowing fan. Look at all these visuals you get today. Isn't this cool? I stayed up way too late. So what this guy's doing right here is he's got a winnowing fan, and he's taking the wheat, and he's throwing it up in the air, and all this junk is chaff that's coming off of it. You know, like wheat has a usable part, and then the chaff is like the shell around it. You know, you've eaten peanuts before, and, you know, sometimes you'd crack it open, and then it's got that other shell that's still on it that gets stuck in your teeth for like three days, and nobody tells you, and then you go and go to work like that, and then, oh. <laughs> that junk is useless, and so as... Look at the illustration, though. It's a cool picture. Jesus is coming with his winnowing fan, and he's throwing people up in the air, right? He's, he's judging. It's judgment. And the people that reject Christ, the chaff, are coming and being separated away from the usable part of the wheat. Then all this chaff is burnt in unquenchable fire. And the picture is this. John says, Jesus is coming, and he's bringing judgment, and he's going to separate that which is usable, those who belong to him, and those who are not are going to get burnt up. And that's a reference to Jesus saying people will go uh, to hell that reject him. Not a popular message again today, but man, it's a biblical message, you know. Today people think this message of John is outdated, um, you know, but it's the same message of Jesus. It's the same exact message of Jesus. It's the same message of Paul, Peter. You know, a lot of what happens in churches today is about the equivalent of paganism with a Christian veneer, right? It really is. People in America especially have adapted this idea that all church is about is just going to get a pep talk and just to get made to feel better about ourselves and even in our sin, you know, even just getting encouraged and, and saying, you need to love yourself and you need to just go for it and achieve your goals in life. And we've bought into this success message and brought it into the church, you know. And a lot of what goes on today looks, it's like paganism, you know what I mean? The worship is about getting ourselves into a trance and stuff like that. That's not Christian worship, you know. A lot of this stuff is paganism. But true Christianity, the true message of Christianity is there's bad news, but there's good news. And then when you hear the good news, you repent of your life before Christ. You give your life to Christ. Then we all come together and we learn what Christ wants from us. And then we all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do that and tell other people that same message. And really, that's the essence of Christianity, you know. Much of what goes on today is like a pagan festival. No, not in John's day. Second part here, John baptizes Jesus. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? Now, Matthew shows us this scene where Jesus essentially comes out of his life of obscurity. We don't really know what he did. He was a carpenter, you know, up until he's 30 years old. And here he comes walking down from the Galilee region into the Jordan River Valley. And he comes down to a baptism. And he's standing in line there. And he comes up and he gets his next and he sees John the Baptist. By the way, did I mention John the Baptist is his cousin? I, I don't know if I mentioned that. He's his cousin, right? Um, and John looks at him and he says, wait a minute, I'm surprised here. You want me to baptize you? Because why would John say that to Jesus, first of all? Because he had sin or because he didn't have sin? Well, John obviously knew Jesus was sinless, so why would you submit yourself to a baptism of repentance of sin, right? What an intense moment. You know, John the Baptist's ministry has all been like, he's coming, he's coming, the king is coming, and then here he is right in front of you, Right? I need to be baptized by you. He recognizes I need the Holy Spirit. I need what only you can provide. Um, and you want me to baptize you. And John tried to prevent him. But verse 15, Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. So Jesus understood that this would be odd to John. And but he tells him it's necessary. So this is the next step in Jesus' life of identifying with those that he came to save, right? Jesus identified with fallen humanity in his birth, didn't he? He was born to a woman. He grew up in poverty. He grew up in obscurity. Uh, and now here's the next step. You know, Jesus identifies with those he came to save in his birth, his life, his death on the cross. Right? And this is the next step in that. So that's why Jesus says, permit it to be so, because this will fulfill righteousness. This will fulfill the next step of the plan. Verse 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John's baptism, not a baptism of repentance of sins for Jesus. He had none. It was a baptism of identification. And the voice from heaven validates this. Now, how many, let's think about this here. This is interesting how the Trinity is right here in this passage. Um, Skeptics of the Bible will say, of Christianity, will say the Trinity is taught nowhere in the Bible, this, this idea that God's three and one. But look at right here at John's baptism. Look carefully. Who, who is at the baptism? Is Jesus there? Right? And then look at, you see in verse 16, the Spirit of God descends upon him. And then the voice from heaven, who is that? The Father. So you have Jesus, God the Son, you have God the Holy Spirit, and you have God the Father. All here manifest in this one scene together. It's very powerful. And so if somebody comes to you and says, the Bible doesn't teach a trinity, we'll say, well, let me show you right here. There's all three of them uh, right here. Notice it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Uh, where we get the image that it was a dove, you know, it's probably from here. But it, notice it says like a dove, right? 
in some tangible way, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon Jesus and anoints him for his ministry. Now, it's not that Jesus became the Son of God at this moment. Jesus is the eternal, um, he's the eternal God. At this time, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowers him for his ministry. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. In essence, when Jesus goes into the water and he comes back up, he's saying, I'm identifying with these people that I'm here to die for, and this is the beginning uh, of his, you know, the last three years of his life, which culminated at the cross and his resurrection. Now, okay, so John the Baptist, strange guy, strange message, right? Shouldn't be a strange message, but maybe it is in some places. John's preaching provides an accurate picture of what repentance is, right? It's real repentance involves a change of heart and a perspective that leads to a change in the fundamental direction of your life. In repentance, you confess your sins. In other words, you admit that you haven't kept God's laws. You've failed to give him uh, the love and respect he deserves. You admit that you've fallen short of loving others as God desires. Those who repent also understand that they're deserving of God's punishment. This is what repentance is, and they're coming to escape the wrath to come. So they come not relying on anything but God themselves. They don't come and say, I have Abraham as my father. I was born in a Christian family. My parents are saved, so I guess I'm probably going uh, to heaven too. They don't rely on anything like that. They come and they just rely on God alone. That's what repentance is. And the evidence that you've done this is a changed life. The pattern of your life has changed from sinful and self-willed to a pattern that honors God and treats others as he wants you to. Now, three little questions here at the end, and we're just going to close with this. Stevie, if you want to get ready, we'll sing a couple songs after this. Who are you in this passage? Are you the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Uh, is your Christianity no more than just like an outward show? I mean, have you truly repented, or would John say to you, no, go bear fruit um, that shows that you've repented. Uh, are you like the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Is, just the, is this the religion and outward demonstration, you know, of, of uh, does it not line up with what's really going on in your life? The second one, maybe you're like those that say to themselves, we have Abraham as our father. When the Holy Spirit comes upon and convicts some people of sin, I've run into this before with people that have grown up in church, okay? They'll they think that they've got it like Christianity's like wired, you know, and you're, they've got it down and they're doing it correctly. And you'd, if you would ask them, you'd say, when was the last time you repented of your sin? Well, I'd, I repented years ago. I don't, you know. It reminds me of like what, what Trump said in that interview where he says, I don't have anything that I need to repent of. And it's like, are you sure you know about the, what the I mean, okay, you know, praise God, you know. Um, some people are resting on their laurels. They're saying, you know, I'm a Christian. I was baptized. I, you know, I grew up in the church. And they're not in the lifestyle of repentance. Repentance isn't just a one-time thing as a Christian. It's not that you just one time turn from your sin and turn to Christ. For the true Christian, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of repentance. Any Christian that's following closely after Jesus, walking by the power of the Spirit, knows exactly what sin the Lord is dealing with them on or sins in their life at any time. They know where they're at in the purification process. They know exactly what the Lord's showing them in relationships, in what kind of a student they are, what kind of employee they are. They know how God is dealing with them because the Holy Spirit 
What the Holy Spirit does in your life is he's conforming you into the image of Christ. Now, if you are completely conformed into the image of Christ today, then you can say you have nothing to repent of, right? But anybody that says, I don't need to repent, or anybody you say, when was the last time you repented? And they say, I don't remember. I, I, don't, I don't even think about repentance. You're missing the mark <laughs> because you have a lot to repent of. We all do. I mean, man, I never knew how much I had to repent of. It went into like high gear when I got married. It was like, holy cow, I'm so selfish, you know? I mean, multiple times throughout the day, Lord, I, I repent. I'm so sorry. I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not like Jesus. It's a lifestyle of repentance. You know, I don't know, maybe you're like the religious rulers that, you know, it's just all a show and you're not really into churning to Christ. Maybe you're like those that say to themselves, we have Abraham's our father. Maybe you're a young person that says, well, my parents are saved, so I'm saved. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't work. You need to churn as well. And maybe you're a Christian that thinks because you grew up in church that you don't have anything to repent of today. And you do, if you're honest, you know. We all do. We all do. That's Christianity, you know. Or maybe you're like those who came to John's baptism to get right with the Lord. You've heard the Spirit call. You've heard the Spirit. He's been pushing a button in your life. He's been pushing multiple buttons maybe for some of you. I don't know. I had so many buttons. He pushes them. But I want to come to the water. I want to turn. I want to turn from those things that grieve the Lord. I want to turn back to Him. Maybe you're like Israel that heard this message, this spirit was speaking to them. You say, God, you know, I'm, you're right. I'm far from you. I've left my first love, and I want to come back to you. In a, in a sense, John's baptizing still today, right? He's still baptizing right now. That message is still for right now. You know, in a way, this scene here, in this, this beautiful scene at the Jordan River happens to me like all the time in my mind, you know. I'm called to repentance by the Spirit and I come and as I'm confessing my sin to the Lord, next thing you know, my eyes are directed to this other one and I hear this voice that says, behold, this is the Son of God. And as I repent of my sin and then my eyes are directed to my Savior, like that happens all the time. This scene is like a perpetual thing going on. Can you picture it, you know? You know, it's life, right? That's Christian life. Come, hear what the Spirit says to you. And turn, turn from your sin, repent, change your mind about it. Change your mind to what God says from what you think. And then make sure that your eyes get directed to the one that the Spirit came on him like a dove. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Father, we thank you for your word here today, and we thank you for the gift of repentance, Lord, from the freedom to turn from ourself and turn to our Savior, Lord. And without that, uh, where would we be, Lord? And so we thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for those today who may need that gift to be given to them, the gift of repentance, the Holy Spirit's empowering to turn from where they're at right now. Father, we pray, help us now as we turn our hearts to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.